Halloween is just around the corner. In the Christian context I grew up in, celebrating Halloween by dressing up and going trick-or-treating was a huge no-no. Instead, as a kid, you went to Hallelujah Night at church, where you could dress up as your favorite Bible character. Now, some really zealous families might stay home and pass out chick tracks to trick-or-treaters instead, but by the time you got to fifth grade or sixth grade, the whole Hallelujah Night thing started to lose its shine. So some churches started a new attraction for teenagers that they thought would capitalize on the spirit of the season and still be quote-unquote evangelistic. They called them hell houses. Hell houses were part haunted house, part guided tour, and part sinners in the hands of an angry god sermon on steroids. The point of which was to literally scare the hell out of you enough to get you to say a sinner's prayer at the end of the night. I remember one that I went to as a teenager had scenes of a young person addicted to heroin thinking about suicide while the next room over had demons taunting someone trapped in a fiery eternal conscious torment. All of this was set to the kind of bone chilling music you'd hear in a Vincent Price film. And at the end of the Hell House tour, some guy would ask the group if anybody wanted to give their life to Jesus and escape the kind of hell they had just witnessed. (laughs) I think the whole tour produced in me the opposite effect, actually. And it unearthed some questions I had buried since I was a kid about how a good God could ever perpetually burn and torment people forever. Was this stuff about hell even in the Bible? As I got older and began to take seriously the scriptures, theology, church history, and philosophy, I found that a lot of what evangelicals were saying about hell was about as biblical as what they were saying about the end times in books like Left Behind, which is to say that so much of it was a blend of cherry-picked proof texts and imaginative conjecture. Many who, like me, grew up with hell houses and lakes of unquenchable fire don't know what to do with the idea of hell now. Is it just symbolic? Maybe there is no final judgment at all. The universalism of the early church father origin has certainly become an attractive option to many. But what do we do with Jesus's talk of sheep and goats, wheat and tares, and what are we being saved from if we're being saved from anything at all. In today's episode, let's talk about hell. You're listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. This podcast is made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. What does it mean to be an evangelical? I know many of you who listen, probably most of you who listen, have some sort of point of connection or affiliation with that word evangelical. Now, it's become quite a loaded term in recent history with all sorts of political baggage, but the historian David Bebbington once identified four ingredients that he said were central to being historically evangelical, the first of which he called conversionism. 
I would define conversionism based on Bevington's research as the belief that due to the problem of sin and our subsequent estrangement from God as a result of sin, that a radical transformative spiritual event or process is required in order to alter the trajectory of our sinful lives away from both its immediate consequences, but even more pertinently to the subject matter in this podcast, to alter our personal destinies away from judgment. So this conversionism, those of you that have spent time in any sort of evangelical context, whether it's been charismatic or more reformed or Baptist, you all know the centrality of this conversionism story. We are we are joining in God's redemptive work in history in his plan of salvation. Salvation is the central feature of this gospel good news. And in particular, a particular feature unique to evangelicals, perhaps, is this focus on conversion, a conversion like what Paul had on the road to Damascus or, or what Augustine experienced, that, that moment of transformation. It is a moment in which we have a spiritual event. It could be a singular event, but more even in some context, while there's that focus on the altar call, the singular moment, there are plenty of other evangelical contexts that focus on a process of salvation, all of which are focused around the radical reorientation, the radical altering of the trajectory of our sinful lives away from consequences. We are saved from something as well as being saved to something. Now, I'm still evangelical enough to believe that there is some necessary process of transformation and conversion in order to alter the trajectory of our sinful lives in a new direction. Some sort of transformative experience has to take place, and this experience is only available via through Christ. I still hold that to be true. The question then becomes, what then what then happens to those who do not experience such a conversion in their life. And again, you guys can go back to the In Christ Alone series to understand perhaps the more expansive definition for me of what it means to be in Christ. And I'm not just talking about that post-hell house sinner's prayer, you know, or the the altar call moment. There are many ways in which the, the means of grace are communicated to people, producing in them transformation and uniting them to Christ. We've talked about that, not just in the Christ Alone series. In fact, it came up quite a bit in the Jesus and John Verveke series, as well. But I do believe, I'm evangelical enough to believe that we have this disposition, um, this disposition which is not oriented towards the good. In fact, if we allow ourselves to follow most of our appetites, those appetites are typically prone to settling for created things above the Creator. And so we need a radical reorientation. So again, the two questions remain, what are we saved from and what are we saved to? Now, in seeking to answer these questions, I also have to confess my um, personal bias, if you want to call it that, or maybe in a more friendlier term to my understanding of myself, my my commitments to a more, more Protestant hermeneutic. Uh, as 
someone that still considers themselves evangelical in, in a classic sense, I see the scriptures to be the locus of authority. Of course, if a, a hierarchical papal authority were the primary determinant in our epistemological and hermeneutical process, then I don't believe I'd be able to advocate for the position that I'm going to advocate for today. But I am not personally a Roman Catholic. And so this shift, this more Protestant shift or Protestant recovery, perhaps, of emphasizing the centrality of scriptures. Yes, the scriptures were produced by Christian community, affirmed by Christian community. But as we moved away from the original Christian community, we need the witness of the scriptures to be a check against the doctrines and teachings and beliefs and practices of Christian community. So for me, I am appealing to the scriptures. And I think without that, we might be stuck with some sort of picture of eternal conscious torment, unless there was some sort of, uh, you know, new Vatican council. But again, I'm not, respectfully, I am not a Roman Catholic. And I think this shift, this shift towards the scriptures being the locus of authority has allowed for many great rediscoveries of biblical truths that have been lost or maybe neglected throughout time, especially biblical truths about salvation. Rediscovering these biblical truths, especially when they're contrary to the predominant historical opinions of the church past, it's a difficult thing, especially when we've been trained to read the scriptures with certain philosophical assumptions and worldviews that might be foreign to those of the biblical authors who wrote those scriptures. So this is a difficult process for us to interrogate some of these worldviews, to interrogate some of the traditions that we may have assumed and brought into our our hermeneutic lens that might be foreign to that of the biblical authors. So to understand the biblical idea of salvation on its own biblical terms, we must identify what, again, humanity needs to be saved from, as well as what humanity needs to be saved to. Then, we have to identify the means by which humanity can participate in that kind of salvation. The problem of what humanity needs to be saved from is made pretty clear from the very start of the Bible. Starting in Genesis, we learn that what we must be saved from is death. In Genesis 2, God announces to the archetypal primordial man that the result of his direct rebellion against God's explicit command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would result in death, Genesis 2.17. So when Adam and Eve are deceived and they rebel against God, God then banishes them from their garden of delight. Within this garden, there was another tree, a tree that often gets overlooked in some of the Sunday school stories as you remember it. This is the tree of life. God says about this tree that, quote, he, Adam, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, end quote, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The author of Genesis makes it 
very, very clear from the get-go that humans are not inherently immortal. They are not. This is an important point we have to start with right away. What is a biblical anthropology? What does it mean to be human? And one of the fundamental features of being human is that we are not fundamentally immortal. We aren't. Adam and Eve in the garden were never promised that they would live forever. This is not, again, even if you, as we've done before, tried to understand the Genesis 2 and 3 narrative in a more holistic sense, a sense in which I think the original audience would have understood it and not impose all these you know, modern questions of science upon the text, that it's really, really clear. Humans were not made to be inherently immortal. The result of their sin, however, is death, but it's a different kind of death. We're not just talking about the the degradation and breaking down of their bodies. We're not talking about entropy. (laughs) We're not talking about these processes that seem to be a natural part of God's good governance and ordering of the universe. Now, we certainly had evangelical forefathers in the Reformed tradition, people like John Calvin, who viewed humanity's immortality as, quote, a consequence of his formation in God's image, end quote. That's quoting Calvin. Genesis is clear that living forever is not an inherent property of being made in the image of God. And we see that in this creation narrative, humans are explicitly denied immortality. As John Walton puts it, quote, immortal people have no need for a tree of life, end quote. Not only is it clear that immortality is not an inherent property of the human experience, but God's sentence of judgment in Genesis 3 contains absolutely no threat of anything that resembles eternal conscious torment. You think that if this was a prescription, uh, this, this was, I should say, a consequence of the fall, a consequence of rebellion against God, that God would have made it explicitly clear from the get-go. But we see nothing about eternal conscious torment, nothing that we would have seen in that hell house that I would have seen in my youth group days. We see nothing about that in the sentence of judgment in Genesis 3. It would stand to reason, wouldn't it, that even with this rich poetic language of Genesis 2 and 3, that that we could expect God to make mention of something as serious as eternal conscious torment part of this curse in Genesis 3. After all, we even have mention of things like perhaps even increased pain in childbirth as a result of this fall, of this estrangement. Why would we not have any indication of a consequence as horrific as eternal conscious torment? The rest of the Old Testament reaffirms what was revealed in Genesis. Humans are created as mortal and their willful rebellion brings about their estrangement from the source of everlasting life, which then would result in a final and irreversible death because we are not made inherently immortal. So the trajectory of us moving away from the source of everlasting life and our estrangement with that would be to head on this natural consequence 
this consequence that would involve final and irreversible death. Throughout the Pentateuch, destruction is the promised consequence of rebellion against God. So you can look at places like Deuteronomy 7.10, Deuteronomy 29 verse 23, Joshua 6.8, Joshua 7.12, Joshua 7.16. Those are a few examples. Let's look at one here in um, Joshua, Joshua 7.12. It gives us this really powerful insight into the causation of this consequence. In it, in Joshua 7, God explains to Joshua the reason for Israel's inability to stand against their enemies. And in doing so, presents a profound reason for the causation and the ultimate consequence of divine judgment. Quote, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Wow. I mean, what a poetic way of wording this. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. The idols, the sin that the, 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 the Hebrew people had given themselves to was devoting them to destruction. And so what God expresses, and this becomes a prototype of what judgment, divine judgment looks like throughout the scriptures, the consequence of which is if you devote yourself to destruction, unless you eliminate that, <laughs> you will inevitably head towards that course of destruction. And it's via not necessarily God smiting you with a lightning bolt, but it is that you have removed yourself, you have estranged yourself intentionally, moving away from the author and source of eternal life. So in that sense, God is not with you because you have estranged yourself. And what is that end result? It's destruction. So like Achan in Joshua 6 or Adam and Eve again in the garden, the causation of this final destruction, this final death and estrangement, the causation of it is our own devotion to destruction. Sin produces devastation and destruction to the good ordered cosmos God has created. And God need only to remove his sustaining presence in order for us to experience the entropic effects that inevitably lead to destruction. We do not sustain ourselves. God is the ground of being. So all we need, all that need be for an irrevocable final cessation of existence would be that God would remove that sustaining presence. The psalmist regularly presents this final and irreversible annihilation as the destiny of the wicked. So here's some passages. I'm not going to go through each one of them now, but um, you can write these down. You can look them up either now, you can pause, or you can look them up after. Check out Psalm chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Psalm 34, 16. Uh, also Psalm 34, 21. Psalm 37, 2. And verses 9 and 10. Uh, you can see later in th Psalm 37, verses 20 and 38, Psalm 58, verses 7 through 8. You can check out those. This is passages where the psalmist is regularly presenting that the destiny of the wicked is this final and irreversible annihilation, this destruction. The wisdom books and the prophets are also clear on this subject as well. 
you can look at places and let's look at a couple of these. So for example, you could go throughout the book of Proverbs and see this reoccurring thread that the way of wisdom leads to the favor and goodness of God, but that the way of sinful rejection, disobedience, the way of the unwise leads to what? It leads to destruction, like Proverbs 13, verse 15. Good judgment wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful leads to their destruction. The prophets, again, the prophets are filled with this these affirmations too, like Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 through 25. Though your people be like the sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord the Almighty will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. Therefore, this is what the Lord the Almighty says. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. Destruction is the reoccurring theme of judgment in the prophets. And you can see this throughout the prophets. Uh, Hosea chapter 7, verse 13, Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. Again, the reoccurring theme throughout the prophets and the wisdom books is that movement away towards the source and author of life, movement away from God's sustaining presence leads to what? It leads to destruction. And sometimes on the surface, you can go through these prophetic books and you can see these announcements of destruction and it can feel like kind of depressing and maybe even feel a little bit like where I don't see how this is a good God at work, but this is part of a larger, more hopeful work of cosmic redemption. God does not leave his creation alone to the entropic effects of sin nor will he permanently tolerate the unjust victimization of the righteous to be trapped in some perpetual chaotic cycle of destruction. God's final healing of the cosmos will involve the necessary purging of all evil, including the final destruction of death itself. The prophets also bear witness to this good news. Quote, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. End quote. Isaiah 25 verses 7 through 9. So go throughout the Old Testament, and what you'll find is no evidence of a hell that looks anything like the hell house (laughs) of my youth group days. It looks nothing like these medieval scenes of demons torturing people in lakes of fire forever and ever and ever, in fact. So go through the Old Testament, cover to cover, and what you'll find is the biblical record we have in the Old Testament makes abundantly clear Humans are inherently mortal, and that the rejection of God as the source of life, demonstrated through their own devotion to destruction, keeps them from the potentiality of immortality and leads to their final, ultimate annihilation. Yet, 
the good news is that this destruction can be averted. The eschatological promise of Isaiah includes the very swallowing up of death for those that trust in him. But how can such an ontological change take place for the people of God? What could bring about, as the Apostle Paul words it in the New Testament, a, a clothing of, quote, the perishable with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, end quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. What would produce such a radical ontological change to human nature itself? A change that would confer a mortal with immortality. This can only be brought about through the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the Spirit's work of mystically uniting an individual to Christ and his completed work. Jesus, as the only fully human and fully divine incarnate Son of God, shares in the same substance and essence as the Father and the Spirit. So being fully human, he's able to be a real participant in the mortal experience and taste death, simultaneously as fully God and always remaining in that hypostatic union, death cannot, quote, keep its hold on him, end quote, which is what is uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. As the late Baptist theologian Stanley Gress so aptly put it, quote, Jesus recapitulated the theological history of humankind. Christ is the fountainhead of a new order of human beings, end quote. Humans become new creations when through faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they are united to Christ, see 2 Corinthians 5.17. God alone is immortal. God God alone is eternal, but has enfleshed himself in his one and only begotten Son so that, and we know this, right? (laughs) First verse you memorize, quote, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? have eternal life. Paul writes to the Romans. Again, one of the very early passages of Scripture. If you grew up memorizing Scripture, you probably memorized. He writes in Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 23, that, quote, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As humanity's substitute, Jesus experiences the wages of our sin while we are conferred the blessing of his eternal sonship. We are saved from death. But how? What's the means? It is through union with God in Christ, who, quote, let's let's take a look at this passage from 2 Timothy 1.10, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, end quote. This is the mission of Jesus, right? The mission of Jesus is to save us from that permanent, final, irrevocable uh, separation. The, the separation, not a state a state of immortality that we, that we are kept uh, perpetually in in order to just simply torment us and to continually punish us. That's not it. He saves us from the destruction of our own devices. 
And how does that happen? It happens when we come into union with the eternal person of Christ. We are not merely saved from death to immortality, though, as if the mere extension of our existence into perpetuity was God's ultimate telos in a salvific plan. No. God's greater purpose has been to offer humanity the the opportunity to become participants in the divine nature, which means that we share in the perfect love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have shared in for all eternity. According to Jesus, eternal life is to know the only true God in a manner similar to Jesus's own communion with the Father. This is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. I in them, you in me. Do you see this, right? <laughs> it is in this intimate indwelling and, and mystic communion that our natures are converted. We experience that ontological change. It's a change that bonds us to Christ and makes us the beneficiaries of immortality for the expressed purpose of eternal communion. We are saved from death to God. So what is God's cosmic redemptive program all about? It is to free, quote, creation itself from its bondage to decay, right? This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, our bondage to what? To decay, to that movement away from the good. And to quote, through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. You can see this in Romans 8, 21, Colossians 1, 20, Acts 3, 21. Now, obviously, there is a degree in which we can read passages like that and hear passages like that and extrapolate like a, a universalist eschatology similar to that of which Origen held to, or maybe even perhaps Gregory of Nyssa, right? And I, I certainly respect and understand why people come to that position. I'm not there, okay? So you have that side, right? Which is like to take texts like that and go, see, it's clear. Everything is restored, right? Uh, creation itself is freed from its bondage to decay. And then on the other side, those that have kind of held to this eternal conscious torment perspective of hell seem to believe that a completely restored creation that's promised in the New Testament also contains Satan, demons, the wicked in a place of perpetual torment. <laughs> like, that doesn't seem like a restoration of all things. That doesn't seem like a final defeat of death itself, of releasing creation from its bondage to decay. Neither position to me is tenable. Again, this to me is not tenable because it doesn't square with the totality of the biblical witness and the biblical literature. And I have to, if I am, if I'm going to be consistent and I'm going to say, okay, that is the locus of authority, right? It's the locus of authority that guides Christian community and the Christian story. Uh, it's not necessarily the hierarchical church structure. Uh, it's not papal decrees, right? Again, with all due respect to those that might be coming from that Roman Catholic perspective, I, I, I can, I respect that. I don't, I don't want this to seem like, uh, 
you know, I think you guys are uh, you guys are sinners in the hands of an angry God or anything like that. But if I'm going to be consistent, and if those of you that are that are committed to that sort of hermeneutic, the the the, the epistemology of de- deriving our understanding of God's revealed will on these subjects from the scriptures, then we have to be consistent about that. And to me, this is where the trouble comes with the universalist argument. And, you know, Origen made a compelling case within his Platonic framework. Uh, If you assume the basis of the Platonic worldview, where uh, everything is inherently, all all human beings as being rational souls that pre-existed, uh, that they are fundamentally eternal properties, then yes, that makes sense to me that if God is going to be all in all and these things are going to be fundamentally eternal properties, that all things, including even the most wicked of wicked, those Hitlers and you know, pick your person, that they are ultimately going to be re- redeemed in the end, you have to assume that. Uh, I think David Bentley Hart also makes a compelling philosophical case for the Christian universalist perspective. Um, I'm just not convinced that it's there in Scripture. I find the universalist strains to uh, impose that reading on particular texts that are a very difficult way to read. So, for example, Jesus' parable of the wheat and tares uh, and the sheep and the goats. I've heard some, again, make the case that the wheat and the tares, the fire is a uh, the fire that the tares go through is either, um, you know, a, a fire that heals, or perhaps the wheat and the tares are, you know, symbolic of the the things within individual people. But that's really a straining of that text, a straining of the sheep and the goats. Um, these are clear, like division between those that have continued and will perpetually would perpetually continue to victimize the world those that would perpetually do harm to objectify the world to make it the object of their own destruction that there is a there is a moment in which that pattern of behavior behavior is no longer allowed to continue and this seems to be the case in these uh, these parables of of Jesus's final judgment now, simultaneously, those who have held to this, you know, the hell house, eternal conscious torment, they end up imposing philosophical assumptions about the inherent immortality of the soul that are also foreign to the biblical worldview. And they they end up making this sort of like Elysium-like eschatology. Did you guys ever see that movie with Matt Damon, Elysium, right, where... Um, you had set in some dystopian future, you know, you had essentially like an off-world space station where all the really, really rich elite people went. And on that space station, they had even these devices that could heal any disease. But everybody left on Earth were like, you know, just in the dires of poverty, right? This sort of eternal conscious torment view essentially creates a final eschatological reality where some of creation is like, you know, off world here, enjoying the blissful communion of God, while another section of creation is reserved as like this horrific, violent, and endless dungeon. It's incoherent and inconsistent with these promises of restoration of all things. And I think there's a way 
a middle, a mediating way that reconciles these two challenges. And I think it's in, I think is consistent with the biblical witness. It's only in Christ that things exist and are held together. And it's only for the purpose of being involved and in, in united in the Trinitarian community of love that things exist at all. This is not to say that all things in the cosmos are currently functioning as full participants in that loving intentionality. There are principalities and powers and human agents that do not fully participate in this. This is both the cause and the symptom of the fall. But God has a good eschatological vision, and it is good news that evangelicals should be announcing instead of hell houses. (laughs) And all Christians, I should say, are called to announce. This is the eschatological vision found in Colossians 1. Quote, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, that's Colossians 1, verses 21 through 26. Death comes through Adam, humanity, but in Christ, all will be made alive. Again, there are some that go, see, universalism here. We've got Adam, and Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. I get that, but you just have to go. And I'm not like looking for a reason. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I, I would, if, if the universalist hope of origin is true, great. I will have no qualms with that, but I want to be faithful in announcing the totality of the Christian story. And if if you even go down a few more verses here in Colossians, you see that it is clear, but each in his turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, those who are united to him, in Adam, all are dead. But in Christ, those who are united to Christ, those who belong to him, will be made alive as he was in his resurrection. So this eschatological culmination of the restoration of all things occurs after those that are not in him. And who knows? Maybe it's like 10 people. Maybe it's one. I don't know. I'm not rooting for this. (laughs) You know, nobody's pulling for anybody to perish right? But we have to announce this faithfully, that this is a real possibility, that after this, the the eschatological culmination of the union of heaven and earth, it occurs after those that are not in him and, and have been fundamentally opposed to him are destroyed. And then death itself will be destroyed. Immortality is conditional on being in Christ, and death by annihilation will occur for all who will not participate in God's loving communion 
through Christ. This is the same picture John the Revelator gives us in Revelation chapter 8, chapters 18 through 22. As Craig K. Coaster writes in Revelation and the end of all things concerning this particular eschatological picture in Revelation 18 through 22, quote, the new creation is marked in part by an absence of powers that oppose God and diminish life, end quote. The absence of powers that oppose God and diminish life is the result of their final and permanent destruction. It's not perpetual torture. They're not demons that are allowed to continue to exist and keep poking you with pitchforks in a lake of fire. That's not it. The absence of the powers that oppose God and diminish life, that destruction of those powers and forces and anything in allegiance to it is what is the necessary precondition for the final culmination and the union of heaven and earth. Quote from Revelation here, chapter 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. (laughs) I mean, to me, guys, like, I don't know how much more explicit this gets. The lake of fire is the second death. It is the final irrevocable separation cessation of existence. And this is why there is no bad thing after that culmination. This is why there is no vice. There is only virtue that we will will with our wills in the age to come. So how is it that we ever came to believe that this lake of fire was a tormenting fire instead of a consuming fire. There are two main factors that have contributed to the traditional notion of hell as an eternal, a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. The first is the influence of Hellenism, and in particular Platonism, during the Second Temple period and patristic era of the church. Platonic influence propagated an anthropological dualism of the body and the soul, with the souls being inherently immortal, including being even pre-existent before birth in the purest Platonic form, purest Platonic sense. Uh, This is where uh, Origen gets his understanding. People lambast Origen for any sort of support of like, you know, the pre-existent soul. But Origen is just being consistent with the worldview of his day. And in that sense, like at least Origen has enough right to think, well, if God made these inherently immortal and all things have to be reconciled, if they're inherently immortal, then they have to all be reconciled. So I give Origen credit for that, right? But as I've tried to demonstrate so far in this podcast, biblical anthropology is not on the same page as the Platonic anthropology. Humans are not inherently immortal with this body-soul dualism. Now, not everybody who adheres to the more traditional view of hell as being a place of eternal conscious torment support the platonic notion of the inherently immortal soul. In fact, most would probably reject the idea of like the pre-existent immortal soul. But yet I've found that most do not provide a supportable biblical anthropology for their continued belief in this notion of hell as eternal conscious torment. Some of these proponents have remarked that 
that the body has to un- undergo some sort of transformation in order to achieve immortality, which is right. They're on the right train of thought there. The biblical witness is clear, though, that such a transformation to go from being fundamentally ontologically mortal to immortal is only a benefit of union with Christ. Eternal conscious torment supporters have either accepted one, it could either it has to either be that they've accepted a platonic anthropology, or they've imagined a means of immortality that would require Christ to force upon the wicked some sort of lesser punitive union with himself, a union that would be just for the purpose of not giving someone the blessing of eternal intimate communion with the triune God, but it would be a union that would have the express purpose of permanent, irrevocable, unending torment beyond the limits of any nightmare you've ever imagined. This, These are your options, right? So either the person is fundamentally immortal, which then it's like, hey, you better accept the pre-existent soul thing as well. Or you have to make the case that somehow fundamentally mortal beings are granted immortality to become immortal. And that is only through union with Christ. So now you have to make this argument that Christ gives himself in union, but a punitive union for the express purposes of of endless Holocaust levels, beyond Holocaust levels of torture. Really? <laughs> that's, tough to, that's tough to square. The second factor that contributes to the traditional notion of hell as eternal conscious torment is the presence of biblical language like unquenchable fire, for example, in Matthew 3, uh, verse 12, or eternal fire in Matthew 25, 41, or Jude 1.7, in the biblical texts surrounding the final punishment of the wicked. We, I have to uh, acknowledge these texts. There are texts that, that seem to give, on some surface level, support of something akin to eternal conscious torment when they use language like unquenchable fire, eternal fire. And, and this is tricky because, again, people that are committed to this like I am committed to the authority of Scripture in revealing uh, God's story, in revealing the, the truth about issues like this. They're committed to Scripture, and they can find texts that seem to support this view. And I'm not saying that they are uh, heretics. I'm not saying anything like that. I can worship together with them. I can worship together with universalists, Christian universalists as well. Uh, I can see people that are committed to this the same hermeneutic, and they land on this point. I'm just in disagreement because I see that proponents of eternal conscious torment have to take a text like Jude 1.7, you know, for example, which, which call the final judgment eternal fire. And I realize they either have to impose that platonic anthropology that sees humans as fundamentally immortal and somehow like that's that's how they get there, or they have to do the you know, Christ is intentionally sustaining through some sort of punitive union. That's tricky. But then there's also the problem of, all right, well, what, even with a challenging phrase like eternal fire, do I make the hermeneutic move to place priority on a text like that over other texts? 
like the wages of sin is death, you know, um, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. What do I do? And that hermeneutic choice. This hermeneutic, though, I think it, it moves in a way that distorts the intended meaning of the text, which in that particular case, as we look at Jude 1.7, is actually in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. That's It's using that as an example of a punishment of eternal fire. This is really interesting. Um, the the, uh, the the theologian Edward Fudge brings this up in his book, uh, The Fire That Consumes. All right. So if we actually look at Jude 1.7, we see that Jude is actually talking about judgment, and he uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction as an example of the kind of punishment that eternal fire means. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah still, it's not still burning today. (laughs) That's not a tormenting perpetual fire. It was a fire that consumed. So I would suggest you can't, this is kind of like basic, maybe a basic hermeneutic principle. You can't take a, a difficult text like that. Uh, one that's like, well, that's really interesting. He says eternal fire, but he's using it uh, and he uses a, a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, which they were punished not with like perpetual unending eternal fire, but it was like final. So in that sense, it was eternal. You can't take a text like that and go, well, maybe that still means eternal conscious torment. And you can't do that to supersede the clear biblical anthropology established in Genesis and the Old Testament, right? When Jesus warns his audience that they should not fear human threats, but rather that they should be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, traditional proponents of hell believe that destroy shouldn't actually mean destroy, but it should mean something like endlessly torture. So we're left with this like really difficult hermeneutic decision. How do we interpret texts that might seem to be contradictory? Is there a way to reconcile them? One possible hermeneutic choice might be to take and try to impose on some of the places I've already described, impose a meaning of eternal conscious torment onto those texts to see if it makes sense. So for example, we could go to Matthew 13, uh, verses 24 through 30, the, the parable of the wheat and tares that I've already mentioned before. And let's see, can you make sense of that parable of final judgment by imposing on it a picture of eternal conscious torment? Does that make sense? I don't think it does. <laughs> when you impose that on the text, it, it, it makes no sense of Jesus's parable. You're left with this strange, irrational picture of immortal terrors that are being tormented but never destroyed. The clear intention of that parable is to explain that God's final destructive judgment of the tares in the fire is not even for retribution. It's not even like, I'm punishing you tares. The point is about the functionality of the fire to save the wheat from the tares and the tares' harmful potential. Again, the unquenchable fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, it destroyed its inhabitants, not endlessly tortured, and that was to save the righteous from their perpetual destruction. They would continue to afflict on them. 
Edward Fudge talks about this again in The Fire That Consumes. Quote, An unquenchable fire eventually goes out when it has consumed its fuel. Unquenchable does not mean ever burning, but irresistible. End quote. Words like everlasting and eternal simply refer to the irreversibility and eternal finality of the consuming fire. And so if you think about it in those le- that lens, does that work when you read passages like the one about the wheat and the tares? Or you read, uh, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Does that make sense? Does that become coherent, right? So if words like everlasting and eternal simply refer to that eternal finality of the consuming fire, they're also in keeping with God's loving nature and eschatological aims for that restored creation, a creation that's free of evil, free of the entropic forces of evil. The case for what I'm presenting to you today is often called conditional immortality. And to me, Conditional immortality presents the clearest and most biblically coherent eschatological consequence for those who do not experience conversion through union with Christ. For those that reject this position and support the traditional notions of eternal conscious torment, I think they have the difficult work of trying to build support from texts that not only address individual eschatological consequences, but from also from texts that explicitly address anthropology and cosmic eschatology. You have to be able to build from those texts a coherent story that supports that humans are fundamentally mortal and that somehow in the final restoration of all things that there's going to be a a state of perpetual torture going on, the, the holocaust of all holocausts. If you were going to build a case for eternal conscious torment based on biblical anthropology, you'd have to supplement the well-established mortal anthropology of Genesis with a clearly delineated process by which God somehow bestows immortality upon the wicked. While the biblical witness is clear that union with Christ brings about this ontological change that's necessary to transform the perishable to the imperishable, it's not clear how or why God would confer immortality to the immortality to the wicked only to perpetually punish them. And and that kind of act, it seems irreconcilable with God's creative telos, which emanating from his loving essence purposed to create what Stanley Grenz calls an external counterpart that would exist solely, quote, to be both the recipient of and the mirror of the divine love, end quote. So all things in heaven and earth, they can't be reconciled to that purpose if there will forever, alongside the new heavens and new earth, filled with Christ's spotless bride, still be some sort of dark pocket of the cosmos out there where Satan and every demon along with every evil antichrist in history like Hitler still exists in this fiery state of never-ending holocaust. Some supporters of the eternal conscious torment position are willing to argue that this sort of scenario would still be the act of a loving God in a perfectly restored creation. I just can't find that notion tenable. But again, simply finding it untenable is not sufficient grounds for rejecting it. I get 
that probably many of you that are in my generation or younger, you're just not going to hold your nose and swallow eternal conscious torment under the auspices that it's just, it's good, and that it's the product of a loving God. Uh, People just aren't believing that. Uh, They have a hard time (laughs) with that. And I understand why. And yet simultaneously, just to simply find it to be abhorrent, that's not good enough, right? Maybe that's just a product of my cultural conditioning and we have no guarantees that everything happening in my culture and in the surrounding American culture that would lead me to find this abhorrent is true, that it's the activity of Christ. We've gone through this at length with all of our Christ and culture and theology of culture stuff, right? What I have to do to be consistent is appeal to the witness of Scripture on this. Robert A. Peterson, who is a Reformed evangelical theologian who who argues for uh, continuing to hold to the position of eternal conscious torment, he wrote this back in 1999, quote, It will not do to protest against God's judgments on the basis of what seems fair or unfair. Instead, people must adjust their thinking, including their view of God's justice to God's truth, end quote. I disagree with Peterson on his view on hell, but I agree with him on this point. Obviously, truth isn't a democratic candidate for office that we can simply vote out and replace by majority consensus with another truth. Uh, There's an old anecdote, and maybe it's apocryphal, that uh, Ben Franklin, I think, once said that democracy is often two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Right, I have to acknowledge, like, just simply, we cannot in our cultural context in which we find certain things to be uh, good, true, or beautiful. Again, it doesn't make them the case. We have to appeal to some standard beyond that that transcends that. That eternal conscious torment is unpopular among my generation, or it seems like what Peterson said was unfair. It doesn't make it untrue. But before evangelicals double down and, to, and continue to announce it as synonymous with the gospel, we had better make sure that the overwhelming evidence of Scripture points us in that direction. Thankfully, it doesn't. It is only through union with Christ that we can experience a real ontological change by which we as human beings who are by nature born mortal and perishable are conferred the benefit of immortality, the benefit of immortality that comes as a result of being united to the eternal God through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Should we take hell seriously? Yeah, Jesus seemed to take it seriously. He talks about hell way more than the Apostle Paul did, but the word he used most often for hell, Gehenna, is in reference to a specific place, the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was the place that in the days of ancient Israel, they would often take their children outside the walls of the city to, to practice human sacrifice, to have their children burned alive in the hands of an idol. It was in the Valley of Hinnom when the Babylonians came to town in 586, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they stacked the bodies to be burned. It's the place where they burned the bodies. Gehenna is the transliteration of that phrase, the Valley of Hinnom. So when Jesus talks about Gehenna, when he talks about hell, he's serious. But hell wasn't a place of perpetual torment. Gehenna was a place that represented moments of judgment in both the now and the future to come, 
when the trajectory of our destructive activity in the world reaches its culmination. It's a warning that should haunt us, reminding us of the grave results of sinful dysfunction. We don't need a hell house to show us the dysfunction of sin in the world. The good news, though, is that the trajectory of those destructive ends can be radically reoriented. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Happy Halloween. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. I'd love to hear your feedback. One of the ways you can provide feedback, whether they're points of agreement, disagreement, things you found interesting, even just tangential rabbit trails, that's cool too, is uh, one of the best ways to do that is via our discussion forums that happen on Patreon. You can find a link in the description below. You can support this podcast and get plugged in with a bunch of other interesting things that we try to do over there to, uh, you know, kind of make this more of like a like a full theology classroom experience. So check that out on the link provided in the description below. You can also reach out to me on Twitter uh, as well. I'll provide a link for that as well in the description. I'll probably be taking some time over November and December in the holidays. I'm trying to scale back some of my time and attention that I give online, but I'll do my best to respond to questions and emails that do come in, or I should say messages that come in on Patreon, if you reach out to me on Twitter, I'm trying to be a little bit less active there and Instagram to give some attention to other things. Um, but again, I do encourage you to reach out to me. Today's episode, again, is made possible be- without advertisement because of the support of listeners like you on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Taylor, Sean C., Sarah R., Sam, Sam and Nicole, Rob, Peter, Paul Reese. Paul Spencer, Mike Thomas, Michael Peterson, Michael Hernstein, Michael Hawk, Matthew, Luke, Lola, Justin, JT, Josie, Johnny, John Michael, John Mark, Dr. Jim, Elise, Eli, Daniel, BJ, Spencer, Jesse, and Clint. Thank you all for your generous support. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.